Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Zial Raushan with you on Money FM 89.3. Tamasek revealing that they will be writing off US $275 million in FTX, which equates to about 0.09% of its net portfolio value. And that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the turmoil engulfing the crypto world at the moment. And that's exactly what we're going to be focusing on today's Money and Me. Joining me in the studio is Dan Ko. Dan, how are you? I'm good. Good morning. Good morning. Now, Dan, from the sharp fall in the price of Bitcoin to the crash of Luna, the year 2022 has been a difficult one for cryptocurrency investors across the world. And as if the pain was not enough, the crash of cryptocurrency exchange FTX has added to the woes of the crypto market, disrupting the recovery it was making over the last few months. Now, just to recap what has happened earlier this week, FTX had filed for bankruptcy after it announced that it failed to meet the surge of withdrawal demands. This marks one of the most disastrous collapses in financial history, as hundreds of millions of dollars were drained from the cryptocurrency exchange hours after it filed for bankruptcy. What then does this mean for the future of cryptocurrency? We also turn our attention to the laying off scene over in the US with recession looming. The tech world is downsizing in a big way with major players like Amazon, Meta and Twitter either announcing or planning tens of thousands of layoffs amid a slowdown in sales and traffic. So what does this mean for the broader economy? Well, lucky for us, today we've got just the right person to help us with these questions. So without further ado, let's welcome Arun Pai Investment Teams at Monks Hill Ventures. Welcome to the show, Arun. How are you Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Good to have you with us, Arun. Now, so much to get stuck into. Over the course of just a few days, FTX, the world's fourth largest cryptocurrency exchange, suffered one of the biggest collapses that has stunned the crypto world. Would you say that there is a possibility of it being a financial fraud case within the brokerage space? I think, to be completely honest, I don't see how that it, this would not be classified as a financial fraud. Mm. Because the way exchanges work is... You know, when a person wants to buy a stock, the exchange or any underlying asset, the exchange facilitates that, right? So I transfer my money into a custodian account with the exchange. The exchange in, in turn purchases the asset and then custodizes it. Now, obviously, the exchange makes money through the exchange fees. But in addition, the exchange starts leveraging up uh, potential client accounts. Mm. So they will extend me a line of credit for me to be able to buy more assets than what my net worth is or the net amount of assets I have in my account. But in turn, in regulated in regulated exchanges like Interactive Brokers or Tiger Brokers, Saxo Bank, etc., there are certain rules and regulations as to the extent of leverage, how much assets, how much cash has to be kept within the exchange to ensure that any equivalent of an exchange run that takes place, that doesn't mean that the exchange has to shut down. What happened over here was literally FTX's sister company, Almeida, sit and basically took most of the money or a whole a bunch of money. I mean, numbers are ranging anywhere from like one or two million billion dollars of client assets to all the way up to like $10 billion. They took it and they were just punting around with it. So you are legally not allowed to take client money for your own purpose. Mm -hmm. The one big caveat though, and I think this is something that is really important to you know mention to all your listeners, is that this exchange was not regulated, was based in the Bahamas, mm. did not even have a board of director mm. concept. So 
people were literally just greed had taken over i feel mm. and people were just you know oh ftx is providing me options and derivatives on bitcoin and ether and solana and polygon mm. this is fantastic i can make money much quicker great let's put money in here without knowing anything else other than just hopefully making a quick buck and it's all come crashing down so is it financial fraud yes but will anything legally happen that's a big question mark because i mean i don't know what the unregulated exchange legal laws are in the bahamas to actually go after spf right yeah, that's right. And thank you so much for the great analysis of what's happened so far. Now, today, we also mentioned that Tomasic Holdings announced that it will be writing down its $275 million US dollars investment in FTX. And they said that they conducted an extensive due diligence process on FTX, which took about eight months. And, you know, the due diligence efforts were focused on regulatory risks, particularly licensing and compliance, and that advice from external legal and cybersecurity specialists in key jurisdictions was sought. Now, that's quite a significant amount of time and research that was done, but why wasn't anyone able to detect this flaw? Look, you know, it's, it's definitely a strange one, right? I mean, not just Damascus, no need to like single out one yeah. specific institutional investor. I mean, you had the likes of Sequoia, there was Paradigm. There were a whole bunch of really marquee investors that had invested into this company. And, you know, I, I'd request your listeners to go on to Sequoia's website. Mm. There's like a 26-page article about how what, the entire process of how Sequoia went about making an investment into this company. And make no mistake about it, right? I mean, the sheer speed of growth on how it managed to attract so many customers that in such a short duration of time is quite remarkable. Right. But at the same time, it's very surprising to see, you know, venture capital funds, I guess you could kind of distinguish it in, in a separate light because you're going after the high growth companies potentially. Mm. In the case of Temasek, which typically should be more concerned about the risk reward scenario over here, uh, especially given you know where the assets come from, it is a bit surprising to see, and I'm sure they did due diligence, right? Like yeah. I'm in the investing space in the private market space and we come across Temasek and they are fantastic investors overall. Mm, yeah. But I think in this specific case, potentially they just got swept up in the euphoria of such a fast growing business and long term, relatively small amount of money by the scale of Temasek. Mm. As you mentioned, you know, the percentage, like it's less than 10 basis points of their portfolio. Yeah. But yes, it is quite surprising. And yes. I'm sure there's going to be a big uh, deep dive and uh, scrutiny on the investing process of uh, Temasek going forward. Yep, certainly. Yeah. Just to confirm, that was 0.09% of its net portfolio value. Now, Arun, you've helped us put things into perspective in a big way, I think. But I have to ask you, how do you think this would shape sentiments of banks and traditional finance firms in terms of their exposure to crypto? I mean, there's no other way to put it. It's a huge mess, right? Yeah. Mm. I mean, like Warren Buffett says it the best, especially back when I was at Lehman Brothers and Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. I think the really famous line that he said was, it's not about whom you're sleeping with, it's about whom they are sleeping with in turn. Mm. So it's this really messy scenario that we are seeing unplay over here where, I mean, literally today morning, you had Gemini come out, you had a couple of other people come out saying that we're going to block withdrawal. Right. And why is that? Because there's, so much interconnectedness that's there in these markets. I mean, you can call it decentralized. I mean, that's the great grand concept of the underlying blockchain and cryptocurrencies. But that's not how they've managed to attract billions of dollars of customer assets. 
those that those assets are still lying within centralized entities. And once you start having all of these cross linkages, where a certain exchange has borrowed a whole bunch of money from, say, like BlockFi or Genesis Trading, which in turn has gotten capital from institutional investors, and there are all these cross linkages taking place, one domino falls, and that leads to a whole bunch of others that are happening. Mm, right. And we saw this playbook play out exactly the same way with Lehman. Everyone thought that this risk can be contained. It literally can't, right? Mm. So hence today you're coming out with more exchanges going bankrupt, more like Gemini licensed entity. They in turn had kept capital with another entity, like they had raised capital, they had raised debt from BlockFi. So all of these interconnectedness, it's when one big entity falls, it's just natural that other dominoes will fall. Mm, So on the back of that, you've got regulatory risk, you've got huge volatility, You've got all these questions being asked about, sure, the underlying technology might be great, but with the number of rag pulls, the number of scams that are taking place, I think the whole question of this, the authenticity of this entire space is now being questioned. My personal view is this is going to lead to a very substantial crypto winter. Mm. But I do feel, though, the true companies with like true business use cases will actually come out of this a lot stronger. Right. And you're already seeing that in the early stage of investing, which is where Monk's Hill participates in. Mm. So mm. Uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing some truly visionary founders come out with uh, truly earth-shattering true use cases of the underlying technology rather than some of these uh, Ponzi schemes. Yeah, right. <laughs> Ponzi schemes. Thank you for covering up the doom and gloom with a bit of a positive outlook. For the longest time, lawmakers have been calling for the need to regulate the crypto space. Can this episode be seen then as a turning point for regulating crypto? What are the possibilities of a regulatory framework being implemented in the cryptocurrency market? Honestly, I, I would hope that that's what this causes. Fingers right? crossed. Because everyone realized that, you know, the short-term greed just ends up being a whole bunch of retail investors, sadly, holding the bag. Mm. And that's where you've seen where FTX goes down. I think it's like 1 million customers are going to be faced with potentially losing all of their assets wow. uh, that should have been within the exchange. So you're talking about a scale that's not 10 or 20 institutional investors investing into a hedge fund like 3AC or something like that, right? You're talking about a very, very large number of underlying user base. And this user base are uh, your potential voter bank Mm. in your next election. Mm. So naturally, you are seeing all of these, uh, especially like senators and House of Representatives in the US coming Mm. out, trying to distance themselves from all of these crypto exchanges and saying that they're going to suddenly start uh, regulations all of a sudden. Mm. It's Mm. something that should have been happening all the time like from the inception of these centralized exchanges. Yep. Because if you're going down the path of decentralized exchange, which is the whole premise of blockchain, by all means, right? Like no regulation, everyone holds their own private keys, makes no difference at all, because there is no central entity to regulate. That was the premise. But then along came the likes of Binance, FTX, uh, and a whole host of others. Mm. And you're leading to this mess right now. So should regulation come in? Yes. Will regulation come in? I would think so. I, I think, and we've not seen the story play out just yet, by the way. Yeah. Over the course of the next month or two, when all of this mess starts unraveling, mm. I think you'll have no choice but for regulations to come in and say, look, if you're going to operate this in a centralized manner, yeah. we have to have regulation. And that's, I think, the right thing to do. Mm.
Right. Thank you so much for that, Arun. So why not let's turn over to the slowing inflation that we're witnessing over in the US. Now, according to the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, wholesale prices increased less than expected in October. And, you know, they rose 0.2% for the month versus uh, an estimate of 0.4%. But this also comes against the backdrop of the US retail sales data, which rose sharply in October. So what do you make of this? And what are your views on a possible dovish pivot from the Fed? Right. So, well, I'm forgetting which uh, named uh, Fed governor came out just last night, I think. Yeah. And was saying something along the likes of one data point does not make a trend, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I know I think the market might have gotten a little bit ahead of itself, like looking at this data point and saying, okay, I think the Fed's going to really cool down yeah. uh, or take a more dovish approach. I think it's obviously next to impossible to uh, predict what the Fed is going to do, and nor do I think as a long-term value investor, at least me personally, do you need to be in this game of predicting where interest rates are going to be over the next month or the next quarter, right? But right. that being said, what do I feel about this entire space right now regarding inflation versus not? I mean, we can definitely see a lot more green shoots, I would say, over the last like week or two, yeah. as compared to just like a couple of months ago, yeah. that things seem to be slowing down a bit. But yeah. I do feel, though, that we are still beyond the area of comfort of what the Fed wants. So, Mm. you know, just putting numbers out there, since you asked me the question, I guess, I do think that 50 basis points hike will take place in December Mm -hmm. and maybe another 25 to 50 more over the next couple of Fed uh, meetings. But after that, I think at least for the next year, it'll be a little bit more of a wait and see approach Mm. because we are at a I mean, right now it's like 3.75 to 4. We'll get to a healthy anywhere between 4.5 to 5, give or take, over the course of the next year. And I think that'll buy the Fed enough time to prove to the market that they are serious about this. Yep. And we can see how things evolve. We can, we've bought ourselves a little bit of breathing space as compared to what it was, like, say, six ago, where it, it was a little bit more of a scary scenario. And the market really did not know how, to what an extreme the Fed will have to go to try and uh, tamper inflation. Right. Then how long would you say we would take for the full effect of this rising interest uh, rate environment to take into effect into the markets? So there's always a time lag, right? I mean, there's no yeah. doubt about that. And you have opposing forces where if you look at the labor market right now, that is still extremely strong. I mean, not maybe not in the tech sector, but definitely on an overall economy basis. So from that perspective, you have a couple of opposing forces to try and reduce inflation and potentially increasing inflation, given the lower unemployment rate and hence increasing wages. So there is that opposing force. In the case of to predict how much time it's going to take, I think it's extremely difficult to say. I, I think I just go back to the statement where now that interest rates are at the level where they are right now, I personally believe at least that the Fed has bought itself a certain amount of time and a certain amount of wiggle room Mm. to see how things evolve, Mm, at least at this Mm. current moment. Mm. Okay. Now, Arun, let's slightly move it on to the US company's layoff impact on the economy. Just this week, Amazon announced that it expected to lay off about 10,000 workers in corporate and technology jobs. This came after Meta laid off 11,000 workers and Twitter laid off about 3,700 workers following Elon Musk's takeover of the social media company. Arun, talk to us about what this downsize in the tech industry would mean for the economy. And does this confirm that a global recession is just around the corner? Well, I I mean, I I know these large numbers obviously make headlines Mm, and, uh, you know, it attracts a lot of investor and retail attention. But I think it's also important to kind of like take a step back Mm. and see what the employee headcount was 
of these same technology companies mm. literally just like three to four years ago, mm, right? I right. mean, Twitter was at like two and a half thousand, went up to 8,000. Now it's come back down to 4,000, yeah. wow. right? Yeah. And, and I think if you look at what a lot of these CEOs came out and basically acknowledged that what they thought were COVID tailwinds for the underlying technology sector, yep. which make no mistake about it, it was a huge tailwind, right? Mm. Where everyone went online, everyone things did, everyone did things digitally, etc., cetera, yep. etc. Cetera. Yeah. It has started to like peter down a bit. Mm. So you had that effect. You had increasing inflation leading yep. to the Fed increasing interest rates, leading yep. to the stock price going down. Yep. So the cost of capital has gone up, and hence they're just right sizing. Mm, now, mm, so, so I, I'm not that concerned. I mean, I mean, obviously, heart and feelings go out to the people who have been laid off. It's extremely difficult times for everyone involved, right? For be it startup companies, large tech companies, tech investors uh, like us, uh, the entire ecosystem. But I think there was so much froth that was developed in this space. A certain amount of healthy correction is not bad for the sector in the long run. Right. Mm. So make no mistake about it. You know, this is hopefully not going to be like 2008 mm. where there was a genuine depression. Yeah. This is more of a, I would like to say, at least as of right now, mm. a healthy correction. So amount of job losses, absolutely. Right. Should there have been a right sizing of these tech companies? Yes. Should they have not grown as quickly as they did? I think so. Mm. Okay. Uh, so I think it's time for people to realize this, you know, reskill, retool themselves see how, what the next big sector or the next upcoming sectors are going to be and uh, try to like figure that aspect out, right? Mm. And you have, from the overall unemployment rate perspective, the tech companies are letting people go, but mm. there's still a lot of other job openings on the services side and elsewhere. So it, it's not like from a headline uh, unemployment perspective, things are actually that bad. It's just within the tech sector, I would say. Mm, right. Then how much of this would you expect to spill over into other industries? So are we expecting a big fallout as well? I think that'll, the answer to that will sadly have to kind of like go back to, you know, the second question that you were asking about. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, how much will the Fed have to keep increasing interest mm -hmm. rates? I mean, and by Fed, I mean global central banks on the back of the Fed. Right. How much would they need to try and put a pause in the economy to try and forcefully slow it down to bring down inflation. And so from that perspective, I think it's anyone's guess at the moment, but at least so far, things seem to be stabilizing a little bit more. A little bit of the wind has been taken out of this hugely inflated balloon. And at least sitting right now, looking at things, I would like to say that things are not as scary as they were, say, just a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. right? So all we need is the next couple of quarters things to stabilize a little bit. Sure, you know, let the interest rates go up a little bit more, let some more air come out of this inflated balloon, which I still believe it is inflated to some extent. Mm, right. And hopefully past that, we can start having, hopefully, you know, maybe a little bit more of a soft landing, as they call it, right? Mm. So from that perspective, yep. at least the way I'm looking at my investing portfolio is not from a overly pessimistic state right now. Mm, mm, mm. Certainly, fingers crossed for that. Arun, you've been excellent in providing us so much insight and in context for everything that you spoke about. Now, final question. With talks of a looming recession, how then can investors prepare ourselves for it? Uh, always the billion-dollar question, I guess. <laughs> Look, I mean, this is, this is all about... Like, I think the one thing... This rapid crypto crash, for example, mm. right? Like this huge correction in the markets in, say, March of 2020 when COVID hit, a huge rise up after that. I would just like to, you know, let your listeners know 
to time the market is extremely difficult, right? Like no one knows what's going to happen in the market tomorrow, the day after, the week after, even the month after, be it what central banks are going to do, what the price action of the underlying business is going to be, what to do, whether it's going to be inflation, uh, deflation, stagflation. I mean, you can throw any kind of macroeconomic term into this, right? What I think is really important is to take a step back, look at companies that are that have healthy balance sheets, not excessively leveraged, very strong management, and that you truly understand what the business is. And if you have that comfort level and you have that conviction to be able to invest in these businesses for the long run, then park your money in there and look at it over the next five, 10 years, rather than trying to continuously play the market every day, month, quarter. I mean, you have like, I'm an ex-trader in the investment bank Mm. and it's your position of seat, it's your seat of power giving you all that information flow access that gives you the unfair advantage. As a retail investor, you don't have that. Mm. But what you do have is the luxury of not being forced to have a mark to market on a daily basis. Like no one will come to you and say, why is your portfolio down like 2% today, Mm. right? Unlike a a hedge fund manager or a trader. But taking advantage of that, I think is the biggest gift that a retail investor has Mm. and has to take advantage of it and invest in the long run, not being too concerned about these short-term business cycles, Mm. but have that conviction for long-term business growth at uh, attractive valuations. Absolutely fascinating. Arun, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. Now, we've been speaking to Arun Pai, investments team at Monks Hill Ventures. Do keep it here with us on Money FM 89.3. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.